It's March 23rd, 2023. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 249 of Rook. 249. Wow. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam Dustana Aziz Durubashuma. Welcome and hello to you from wherever you are in the world listening in. We appreciate you. Hello, Pega. Hello. Happy uh, post Noruz to you. Thank you. Happy. Actually, it's weird with Noruz because uh, there's the Saat Tahvil, there's mm-hmm. the moment, the spring equinox. Yes. We sit around the half scene. Mm-hmm. Everybody says important things to each other, and <laughs> at least right. in my family, very important. And then, uh, and then Doru's continues for a couple of weeks. Yeah. I, I I didn't know that growing up. I thought that was just days, technically. So do we? So so in normal years, let's mm-hmm. forget the whether it's kosher right now to talk about Doru's. What right. uh, in normal years do we say Happy Doru's for two weeks, or do we say? How was your Noruz? Like well, a, I think when you first see someone after Santafin, then you say, you know, that kind of thing, happy Noruz. But then for us, we see each other almost every day. I think we've said our <laughs> happy Do Noruzes. I need to bring someone in who's come from Iran more recently, or do you know what you're talking about? I think I know what I'm talking okay, about. Okay, so the answer is you. if you see someone that you haven't seen yes. a week after uh, Noruz, the equinox, yes. you still say happy Noruz. That's right. Right, because it's the first time you're seeing them. Because since. even in because in Western New Year mm-hmm. calendar, whatever, there's that you still say Happy New yeah. Year, but then there's that moment. It's like, it's like when do you take the Christmas lights down? It's like there's a moment of mm-hmm. should I still be saying Happy New Year? It's January seventeenth, right? Yeah. So I with Noruz though, the thing actually continues for a couple of weeks. Yeah. So I think up until Sizdabedar, which is thirteen days mm-hmm. after Noruz, you can kind of carry that on. Right. Okay. So I mean, uh, most people listening have already uh, are considering tuning out already. <laughs> <laughs> like Gian's <laughs> elemental lessons in Noruz. I think I knew a lot about Noruz, but it was a new thing to me. We grew because I grew up in the West mm-hmm. to to know that it's like a two week long. Really? Did you not celebrate Sizabe there growing up? Is like that, you wouldn't take your the... sabza afterwards and throw it in oh, a body yeah, of water? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And... No. No, okay. no, come on. That's a couple. Oh. Of, no, my mom would. We keep the the sabze, but I thought it was just until it dies or something. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was very that. specifically. It no, dies and then the throwing days. it in the water and all that. No, no come okay. on. I, I didn't even jump over the fire. That Did was you a, jump this year or no? At all? Ever? Yes, yes. In recent years. Okay. But we didn't do that. We didn't have that. I, you know, I was brought up very. I mean, there was nobody around. There weren't, you yeah. know. I mean, in my where I was growing up in like Thornhill of the eighties and nineties, they see a bunch of Persians jumping over fire. They would like <laughs> arrest us or something. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of now. Thornhill it's like nowadays. the community. Yeah, everybody's like, oh, Josh yeah. Abasuri. We didn't have that. You know, I mean, That's we didn't fair. have the luxury of of having that. You people with your <laughs> you community. <people. laughs> uh, uh, so anyway, how was your Nuru's? 
It was good. I mean, um, despite what's been going on and how we've been feeling, um, you know, with family, at least we tried to maintain some of the traditions mm-hmm. and still celebrate the new year. And, you know, like we talked about on uh, our Noru special, I'm still a big believer in celebrating Noru's mm-hmm. and making sure that mm-hmm. those traditions are kept alive. So yes. it was good. I spent time with my grandfather, which was important. Very and nice. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, same. We, we sat in... Uh, uh, it, it wasn't as lavish or as mm-hmm. excitable as Noru's other years, but um, it was nice to to spend time with some family, and then of course the obligatory zooming and phone calls from yes, afterwards. Uh, everywhere. <laughs> Coming up on this show, uh, it's a it's a it's a really strong show today. I'm looking forward to our guests. Uh, have you seen uh, a woman named Hedye Safiori? I, I, I shouldn't say have you seen because I know you've seen her videos. Do you know who mm-hmm. that is when I say that name? I think so. I think I've seen the videos on Instagram. And did you? So I mean, you know because we're yes. about to do the show, That's so right. you know <laughs> uh, who the lineup is. But did you know of her before we booked her a couple of weeks ago? And um, you know, I don't know if I knew her specifically, but I had seen some of the videos and things like that circulated and shared. I only ask because it's a great, it's an interesting story. Like she's, mm-hmm. she's someone who came from Iran in her mid-teens uh, and was a competitive swimmer. She's an athlete, goes into healthcare and wellness, mm-hmm. and then I guess starts making TikTok videos two or three years ago, inspired by her daughter. I'm going to ask her about that, but but more specifically has been making these videos as just a wellness person, mm-hmm. a mom, uh, you know, uh, and you know, an active concerned Iranian, she's in Vancouver, an right. Iranian Canadian. So she's making these videos about the uprising on TikTok, on Instagram, and goes viral. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of her stuff is very moving and very real and uh, and has, you know, millions of views in some cases. Relatable, I guess, and that's why she's gone viral. Definitely, the way she definitely. Has, yeah. She seems like that. She's she's coming from a really honest place. Mm-hmm. Yes Safiari will join me from Vancouver in just a little bit, and then um, there's a woman in in uh, Germany. She's an Iranian German activist. She's been working with refugees, um, uh, women, uh, LGBTQ concerns over the years. Um, and has become she, she she actually is getting her PhD in social sustainability, and that was what she was studying in Iran, mm-hmm. working with agriculture farmers, etc. But has become very political. Was first politicized during the Green Movement, and now is also making um, online uh, uh, statements and videos, etc. Mm-hmm. That get a lot of attention. She's gets a lot of media, does a lot of media. Furuk Kanani. Uh, she's joining us from Frankfurt, Germany. So looking forward to having Furuk Kanani on the program. Let me segue before we get to the Rook Roundup into uh, something that's Germany related. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once in a while I deviate from not just from the, the revolution, but from uh, Iranian related content to talk about more important things like Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course. My uh, f- forget family, tradition, <laughs> war, and uh, humanity. It's all about football. Let's talk about football. Yes. Um, do you know who Mezit Ozil is? I do not. Oh, and you call yourself a football fan. I never said I was a football fan. Oh, it's your fan. sister said, who's a football yeah, fan. Yeah, my sister's more of a football fan. Uh, I just follow football as often Mezit as I Mezit Özil is a German mm-hmm. of Turkish descent. Okay. Uh, Could have guessed from the name. And yeah. he's also actually uh, quite quite a devout Muslim. Like he, oh. he would always do shout outs to Muslims around the world, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, 
who played for the German national team, but more significantly, very, very creative player, really interesting guy, right. somebody I really liked as a player. Um, you know, not a really big stocky guy, kind of a, I always like the players that are more like me because I imagine I could be them. <laughs> he's kind of like a, you know, um, he's not a gulag. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Mesut uh, but also he was kind of dogged by controversy for being, by the end, but being lazy or not trying hard enough or something because mm -hmm. he, he's one of those really naturally skilled guys. Played for Arsenal for years. Mm -hmm. uh, helped us win the FA Cup and, and was one of the Arsenal stars before he was mired in uh, a sad ending at Arsenal, ended up going back to Turkey to play, and mm -hmm. now he's retired. He just retired yesterday. Oh, was that the news? I was, that was the news. That was all the lead-up. Why am I retiring? talking about Mesut, okay. Mesut Uzzel? Well, for at least seven people out there <laughs> of the 100,000 who are listening right now to each of our podcasts, this will mean something. And they're like, yeah, he's talking about Uzzel. For everyone else, if I didn't distance myself from them with the <laughs> not knowing what the fucking Noruz, that is two week, uh, it's a two-week thing. Now, with Mesut Uzzel, I'm, I'm really losing the audience. Um, so... Good, um, thank you, Mesut Ozil, for the years yes. of congratulations uh, on the retirement. On the retirement, by the way, he's like thirty-four. Wow, yeah, it's over. Yeah, can you imagine? Over at thirty-four. How old are you, by the way? Thirty-four. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> I know, why I know I'm how like... old you are. Uh, you uh, see, yeah, it's over for some, and you're just beginning. Thank God. Um, I also wanted to mention before we get to the Rook Roundup that um, uh, for those who want to give us feedback mm -hmm. and who are inside Iran. And don't want to post on our social media platforms. We've had a couple of people tell us that they're a little worried about putting themselves out there in terms of yes. like, um, you can email us, mm -hmm. uh, which may be a safer way to do things. And, and we'll read your emails or, or put them into the mix of feedback that we're getting in terms of what we read out on the show. Uh, the email address, the simplest one is info at rookmedia.com. Info at rookmedia.com. All right. Um, let's get to the Rook Roundup because um, before we get to Hedia and Furukh, there's some, well, there's been some things, Noru's related yes. things that have been uh, happening uh, both inside Iran and outside mm -hmm. in the last few days that I know we want to address today. Um, first and foremost, uh, it was an interesting Noru's, it seems, in Iran as well. It was, yeah. Lots of interesting videos coming out of Iran, you know. I'm so used to seeing um, videos of Hafsin and, and the bazaar and, you know, things leading up to the celebrations and things like that. But lots of very different videos. Um, we saw videos of numerous people out on the streets chanting um, and marking the new year, I guess, in a very different way. So uh, there were videos before Sontafin and also after Sontafin, actually, of individuals on the street uh, chanting death to dictator, mm. which was... You know, I mean, not not a normal part of the, the Noru's tradition. Not. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we saw these videos from a variety of cities. So I think Tehran, Karaj, Saqiz and Mahabad were some of the main videos that I saw. But, um, you know, there there's been so many reports of other cities as well. And mm -hmm. definitely not something that we're used to seeing, especially around this time of year. Yeah. So it was clear that um, Noru's is not was not just business as usual mm -hmm. in Iran for for at least some folks. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know what I thought was interesting is that the for everything I've been told and what we always understand is that the the mullahs the ayatollahs are not big fans of Noru's, mm -hmm. right? It's it's it. I mean, it's a non-religious exactly. Persian you know tradition that was celebrated by everyone before them, so That's they don't. Right. Uh, 
but uh, but then Khamenei, the supreme leader, does a Noru's speech. I think it's one of those things that he can't not. Uh huh. Uh, more than anything else, I, I don't think. But like the Queen does the address on Christmas, presumably because she agrees with Christmas. Yeah, but I, I don't think <laughs> like, you can really relate the Queen to Khamenei. You know, like I think that's a very big, uh, very big. Oh, <laughs> poor Queen. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry to the Queen. No, but I mean, I mean I'm just like, you know, why would he do an address? That's something that somebody can write in and explain to me. Why? Why does he do an address mm-hmm. on a on an occasion that he opposes, presumably? I mean, it is the Iran, it is the Persian New right. Year, right? Like he he can't not address it in, oh, in any see. way, shape, or form. He can't ignore the yeah, Persian New Year. Exactly. Right. I think it's more that than him, you know, celebrating it and wanting to endorse it in any way, shape, or form. All I right. think it's just yeah. Well, the other person or the people that were celebrating Noruz this year, um, much more conspicuously because mm-hmm. we kind of know where Khamenei's uh, um, interests lie. Uh, and perhaps we know where this person's uh, or the, this administration's interests lie as well. There was a there was a Noru's gathering mm-hmm. or party celebration celebration at the White House. Yes. Now, I mean, in a normal year or in in some some of the more recent years, we would actually think this is a a good thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, recognition of Noru's and by by extension the Iranian community. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is great. The White House is getting involved and, and you know, uh, recognizing us and we're not invisible anymore, et cetera, et cetera. This year, I did a bit of a double take. Sorry, what? Anoru's, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and then it turned out that a bunch of Iranian-American uh, public people were attended this thing seemingly enthusiastically uh, given what they ended up posting in social media, and uh, and there were performances, and there was you know reverie and food, and and Biden gave a speech, which I watched to try and figure out what this thing was all about. So, what what is your take on this this Noru's gathering at the White House this year? I mean, I think more than anything else, I was disappointed, and it's funny because my initial reaction, I think, was a little bit different than yours. Um, it wasn't just a double take; it was. I had a little bit more hope for this event this year, actually. Um, I thought, you know, in light of the last six months, this is a dedicated time where Biden could say something about the occurrences that took really? place. I did really you really did. think that? Listen, I'm not saying that he was going to stand true to what mm. he was going to say, but I thought at least he was going to make a slightly better speech than he did. I mean, for God's sake, he had one line in his entire speech that spoke to the occurrences of the last six months. Mm-hmm. The rest of it was all fluff. Yeah. I mean, yes, sure, he used the Woman Life Freedom slogan and he said, you know, we wish you the best and we're going to support. And I actually wrote down a quote of what he said. He said, we're going to hold the Iranian officials accountable for their attacks against their people. Hmm. That was the only part of his speech that you could say was even remotely related to the atrocities. And it also means nothing. Exactly. So, I mean, like I said, my, my initial reaction was a little bit different. I was thinking that maybe he would elaborate on the occurrences of you the thought last of the Noru's party would be an occasion I, for Biden to give a highly politicized speech well, that would that would suggest a, ter- a different um, uh, tact and direction from what they've been signaling for the last no. few weeks which is that they're basically going to enable and continue to work with this regime I didn't think that he was going to give a highly politicized speech changing gears what I thought was he was going to use it at least as a photo op to 
make Iranians feel better about that's what, what they did. Going on. No, he didn't. He didn't even do that. Well, they kind of did that, that. I mean, that's what. Look, uh, sorry, I'm cutting you off. You no, go ahead. Okay. You finish. Go ahead. Um, well, that was the first thing. So that was my initial reaction. And then after listening to it, I was supremely disappointed because, again, like I said, he he said nothing. It was all fluff, bullshit. And then the other thing that really disappointed me, which you touched upon, was the Iranian Americans who were there. I mean, you know, it's one thing for me to have false expectations from someone like Joe Biden, but it's another to feel disappointed by the Iranian Americans who were present. And I understand, you know, I wasn't expecting anyone to ruin the event or to, you know, stomp their feet and scream or anything like that. But then the posts on Instagram, I mean, the pictures of it was an honor and a privilege to be at the White House. And I understand, sure, maybe it was, but you couldn't even then take five minutes underneath that post to say, you know, we wish he had said something. Mm. We wish that it would have been an opportunity for him to address some mm. of the concerns. Anything. And and none of that. I haven't seen one thing from anyone who attended as an Iranian-American voicing that. Mm. So that was the other really, really disappointing I think, part for yeah. me. Uh, I, I, some of the people who were there have surely been critical of... Uh, I guess they've been critical of the regime in Iran. I don't know how the critic. Look, I, let me first say that. Th sorry, were you done? Yes. All right. So let me for, for the first part in terms of the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have a problem with Joe Biden. I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to position this as some right. attack on the Biden administration because, uh, first of all, I don't have a horse in that race in terms of the mm -hmm. American uh, um, politics and stuff. I mean, I watch it eagerly as a political junkie, mm -hmm. but I don't really. And I and I've been, you know, anybody who knows me. Uh, and has listened to even this show for the last three yeah. three years. I was super critical of Trump on all kinds of mm -hmm. um, things, uh, but uh, I, I don't think we gain anything by um, not pointing out uh, either the hypocrisy or the the problematic way that the Biden administration is dealing with the Iran situation right now. I think, in fact, we, we do a disservice to everything, ourselves, our respect for, even our respect for the Biden administration. Hey, you know, we're gonna be real with you. We're gonna tell you, we're gonna call you out when, mm -hmm. when we think you're not doing what you should be doing. Right. And, and the problem is the delta between what they say and what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. The supposed language, which we talked about so many times, the lip service of, of this is what we, oh, we wanna support democracy in Iran, the women, the people, and what they're actually doing, which is uh, A, nothing, and B, worse than nothing, mm -hmm. which is uh, business enabling. as usual, enabling yeah. and um, not enforcing some of the sanctions as we have so many guests come on and tell us, and working towards the, the resuscitation of the JCPOA. Right. So there's a reason why in recent months, everybody under the sun, we've done it a few times, I did an opening essay about it back in friggin' October, mm -hmm. there's a reason we've been saying uh, oh, to, to, to Robert Malley to resign. Right, yes. the special envoy for Iran, the Biden administration's special envoy for Iran. Um, it has been in countless ways uh, uh, found evident to the Iranian community around the world that this guy and people in Iran who called out Robert Malley, the Irish, Robert O'Malley, Robert Malley, as someone who, he, whatever his interests are, they don't seem in line with mm -hmm. the, the interests of the Iranian community, which is almost universally in favor of regime change. Yeah. Uh, there's different signaling coming from the Biden administration. So, so here's this guy there, uh, 
And there's the Biden administration that we've all been so critical of or at least disappointed with. Mm -hmm. Then they want to throw a garden party or whatever it was. You know, let's have a little song and dance about Mm Nauru's. And my concern is, without attacking uh, the the Biden administration or, or the people who attended, my fear is that this little party set us back at least six months, maybe a year. And the reason is because these people in the Biden administration who have been subversively or maybe innocently, you know, continuing to engage with the regime in Iran and while they pay lip service to democracy and the freedom fight, et cetera, now have reason to say, you know what? We had a bunch of our, mm-hmm. the high profile Iranian Americans at the White House and they were cheering on Joe and, and it's clear that we're on the right path. There's always going to be extremists who don't like what we're doing. But for the most part, you know, we engage with the community. We invited them into our home. They were here. Everything went well. They were all cheering. We took pictures together. It just, it just, it, it basically underscores justifies, mm-hmm. ratifies everything that the Biden administration has been doing and therefore gives them reason for inaction. Mm-hmm. You know, they can always point to this and say, well, we, you know, well, we had a bunch of, you know, aren't these some of your prominent people? They came and they were cheering and everything was fine, right? I mean, what do you, what are you guys so freaked out about? Oh, I, it must be these radicals who want, it's not radicals who want regime change at this point. It's everybody. Mm-hmm. So that's the concern for me is what, do you, what, what are we doing here? You know, and yes, if maybe at some point at this no roots party they took joe biden and and robert malley into a room somewhere and yelled at them and impressed them and told them you know you're going to change the policies please and all and 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 so i mean we don't know to know exactly what happened so i will stand corrected if you know if that happened but it's not what we saw what we saw was selfies and here we are and this is great and 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 it just kind of sucked it was like come on this is an opportunity don't go there's basketball players or hockey players who don't go when they disagree with the, the president's policies. Mm-hmm. You know, when they when they want to celebrate them and say, you won the Stanley Cup, they go, ah, I can't come. I, I agree, disagree with the war in Iraq. Yes. We don't, you don't have to go. And if you go. Use it as an opportunity. I guess, you well, don't do a is, press conference outside the White House and say, this is, we came here, but actually we disagree exactly. with the policies or something, I, you know. Well, this is why I was saying I was so disappointed with the social media feeds afterwards because again it's one thing i'll i'll even say i understand it's a big deal you got invited to the white house you want to go fine but for all these people who have been the quote-unquote voice of the iranian people the last six months who have presented themselves as you know the voice of the iranian people who have presented themselves as as these activists and and i appreciate everything they've done so far this is not and i think some of them probably went to the white house with with really good intentions. absolutely but what's been shown on social media the last couple of days does not reflect that no i have yet to see any of those people write something and say you know we went and the half scene was great and we were honored to be invited but and then continued to say what they were upset about similar to what we're talking about here i have Mm. yet to see one individual do that well then maybe they'll do that but that i I, I don't even know if that's gonna help not to overstate all of this there's so many things going on Mm -hmm. i mean the the Biden you know no garden party whatever I call it a garden party I don't even know if, I don't know if it was in the garden it was a, it was a Noru's party whatever it was the same they, they had the Ted Lasso people and then they had the right. Noru's and you know but I, it really is just about using these opportunities and it was a bit of a double take just because 
I thought Iranian Americans were all critical of the Biden administration not doing more at this point right. and don't resuscitate the JCPOA and come on, we need to. And that doesn't mean we shun them or don't talk to them mm -hmm. or, Jesus, if you get meetings with the White House, take the meetings and, you know, make your case and all of that. But a party, it, you know, it was, there's so many times in the last six months. I mean, we were saying, people were saying don't play concerts, right? right. People were saying, don't 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 sit in the United Nations while this guy comes and mm -hmm. talks. We symbolism is important. Where you turn up, what you do. We debated. You know, should we do Nowruz? Are we allowed to go to a gala? All of these things need to be talked through. This one, it, it was like you get invited, so you run to the White House, and everybody. You know, I mean, it's just I I really worry that it set us back. Yeah. Maybe there were relationships forged at the White House during this notice celebration that will convince the Biden administration to, to do a U-turn and, and <laughs> celebrate and support that. And you know what? I mean, if they do, great. We stand corrected. Um, on that same note, and, and again, this is not of any importance in the grand scheme of things, but I have to say it. It really bothers me that Joe Biden and Dr. Biden can't get a couple of Farsi words right. Like, I mean... I don't know. Maybe it's just I'm a stickler for. You're language not making fun of words. his speech patterns because no. we know that that's you know that's. No, I just not have cool. a problem he, he with. Ha, he's not the best, most. No, no, no. no. That, that's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to you know the battle <laughs> when she's giving the when Grammy award. Well, the Grammy award, and then again at the Noruz celebration too. I mean, half seen battle Noruz That's all it was, and they couldn't even get that right. <laughs> Like it just it really bothered me. Which one did the can you just pick one word that they you want them to get right? I mean, At the it, very <laughs> least, battle Like come on. Yeah, when it's she really was giving the hard. Grammy, I was like, come on, dude. You yeah. could have had a, a handler whispering the the pronunciation in your ear for the for a few hours before the <sighs> the, the ceremony, but um Yeah. Yeah, and then the the speech. It was so yeah. weird because I I was thought like what uh, yeah. It, well, why wouldn't you? You don't have to say something major and political, but it was like downgrading mm -hmm. anything. You know, you wouldn't even think much has gone on in Iran. Exactly. There was that one line. That's what I'm saying. Line. And at one point, he started talking about something else. He, did. he wasn't he even talking about, about Iran. He, he was talking about, about uh, political prisoners from in West Africa. In West Africa, yeah, released. it was it was a whole other thing. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then it was a lot of conversation about um, opportunity for Americans because you know the various opportunities. Because I think. Um, that's why we're in America. Yeah, we're giving people opportunities. Exactly. It yeah, was like yeah. conversation about opportunities yeah, in America. Was, I mean, do, are we expecting too much? Maybe we're, you know. I, maybe. I really don't think so. I mean, mm. listen, we've seen the impact that Iranian, at the very least, mm -hmm. Iranian Americans, I'm not mm -hmm. even talking about the diaspora mm -hmm. as a whole. Mm -hmm. Iranian Americans, mm -hmm. we've seen the impact that mm -hmm. they have. We've seen the turnout. We've seen, you know, the concern. We've seen the effect that they've had mm -hmm. with congressmen and, mm -hmm. and the Senate and the UN and here and there mm -hmm. and all these places and yet the president can't recognize Well, And that? I know we're not alone in this thinking because I saw Maciel Najad mm -hmm. wrote a very yes. um, uh, mm, kind of aggressive post about yeah. uh, uh, the, that whole Noru's party and the, and the shenanigans. I saw Yasmin Pahlavi mm -hmm. uh, did not, was not happy about it. So it seemed like various opposition yes. type leaders were saying, come on, uh, what's this, what's going on here? And uh, uh, so, all right, well, 
anything else in the the rook roundup um i think just one other thing i wanted to mention um is the sad news that we heard of the passing of the 31 year old hussein al-ali this was the one that they they called a suicide or yeah so um this is in iran this is in iran yes so he was a 31 year old originally from shiraz he was residing in banda abbas and he had been there for the last couple of years for work um and he was actively protesting the last couple of months and in fact for the last two months he was in hiding because he had been threatened and and he had been um i think brought in for questioning or there were some reports of uh, of of him being brought in and so last week um there was a report that came out that he had committed suicide and jumped off of a of the fourth floor of a building mm. but then in the last couple of days it's come to light that he was actually pushed off this building um so he was killed by I think what I think uh, probably the IRGC or, or or some sort of police force or something, um, but you know this isn't something new. We've seen and heard so many reports yeah. of individuals quote unquote committing suicide, and yeah. not even just in the last six months, but this is a tactic that um, the IRGC has used for years. So you know it's not that hard to believe that in fact it wasn't suicide and he was killed. Yeah. Um, but I just thought you know it, it's important to mention that that there are still individuals being brutally killed. Uh, what uh, should we say his name again? Yes, his name is Hussein Al Ali. Thank you, Pega. I mean, we are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. And we are on this ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, Castbox. If you want to see visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube. Uh, if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. Now, you can become a Rook member. Uh, you can join us on our Patreon page and help support what we do here by going to rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, and pressing the Support Us button. We really appreciate when folks become a uh, Rook members on our Patreon page. You can do so for uh, as a bronze, silver, or gold member. The bronze is just $10 a month, and it uh, really helps us to stay alive and do what we do. We depend on crowdsourcing. I've been uh, mentioning a new Patreon member each uh, show, and I'll do that today as well. And we have a gold, a new gold member, and it's Dr. Amir Ruzati. And I've got to say, Dr. Ruzati, you know, he... He has been, uh, I want to give him a proper shout out mm -hmm. here because not, not only did he just become a gold member, but he's been super supportive yes. of Rook. Um, he's sponsored a couple of things in the past. He's, um, he's actually a really great supportive person in the Persian community mm -hmm. in Canada. Uh, he's this award-winning physician, um, works in the uh, Botox field as well. Like he's a GP, but also uh, a beauty and cosmetic uh, person mm -hmm. uh, in a very advanced way. Um, he runs a company called Skin Beauty MD in Toronto. It's in Thornhill, my old stomping grounds there <laughs> growing up. His knowledge and expertise in, in both fields of medicine and beauty and cosmetic stuff are, are really impressive. Anyway, Dr. Amir Ruzati, thank you so much for uh, becoming a gold member on our Patreon page. And I wanted to give him a proper shout out today just because he has so regularly mm -hmm. been supportive. Absolutely. All right. Should we get to our guests? Yes. Here we go. My first guest today is an Iranian-Canadian budding social media star with 20 years experience as a health clinician in Canada. 
Hedia Safiari is the founder and CEO of Prompt Health, which is an online platform and app with a mission to empower individuals seeking wellness solutions and wellness businesses. So Hedia moved to Canada with her family at the age of 16. She obtained her master's in cardiac rehabilitation from the University of British Columbia. She's also a digital media creator with over 700,000 followers on different social media platforms. I think it's way more than that if you add them together, where she talks to her audience about health and wellness and more recently she's been very active and focused on supporting the uprising in Iran some of her videos for the cause have gone viral of course and she has also just published her first book entitled understand you I asked you answered and right now Hedia Safiati joins me from Vancouver Canada today hello Hi, Gian. I'm so happy to be here with you, and um, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to have you on the show. I've been watching your videos for months, and now uh, here you are. You know, your first question in this new book of yours is, what is your name and one thing about you? I don't know if you knew I was going to do this to you. I'm going to throw <laughs> some of these questions back at you. We know your name, of course, because I've just introduced you, and people would know you if they follow you. How would you answer the question, one thing about you? So this is interesting because this is what I asked uh, on TikTok from people, and it was very interesting how everyone answered it. And because whether you talk about your job or whether you're a mom or dad or um, your personality um, or the first thing that comes to your mind um, and how you would go about describing yourself. And I tried to describe myself as best as I could in one of the videos that I put out. Uh, but first of all, um, you know, I grew up part of my life in Iran until I was 16 um, and then uh, spent most of my life now in Canada. So I'm, I'm an Iranian Canadian woman. Um, my background is in health. Uh, so I'm a health professional uh, right now, also an activist. Um, and I'm trying to use my voice um, to help anyone um, and, you know, anyone who's been uh, struggling after pandemic, as we know, the world has been upside down. And um, first I uh, created an app, a health app to do that. And then I got um, involved in different social media platforms to use my voice. And now with what's happening in Iran, um, I felt the responsibility to do that. And, and here we are. It's a great answer. I don't think that qualifies as one thing about you, but I know there's too many different things. You haven't learned how to answer your own question. I know. Well, it's like too many things. I'm a mother. I'm a mother also that I should say. That's many things about you. Uh, yes. But it was a good answer. I, I Listen, I want to get to your book. I want to get to your, your personal story of coming to Canada that you just referenced from Iran. Let me ask you first, though, because you have been so... Uh, very prolific in making videos and being active during this uprising of the last six months um, for freedom in Iran. Hedia, how would you describe the last six months for you? Uh, it's been a roller coaster of emotions because I, I, you know, um, I posted my first video about Iran uh, on TikTok, and uh, because I felt I'm responsible, um, having a voice to create awareness and after posting a few videos i got warnings that you know because the algorithm there is so sensitive uh, that if i post one more video i'll be banned so i moved to instagram and and i you know just 
dedicated my entire Instagram uh, to Iran. And every day and every hour, there was a different news. So then here you are as a mother, as an entrepreneur, as you know, having so many different responsibilities, keeping up with all the news and what's happening. And I went on this roller coaster of, you know, emotions and ups and downs and the responsibility that I have to do something and create awareness. So I just kind of went with it without even thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm still going without thinking, you know, I think a lot of us have been in that fight and flight mode. And part of it perhaps goes back to childhood and all the years that we couldn't speak. And now it's like, here we are, it's all like spilling out and you don't know what to do with it. Mm. Um, so that's that it's it's been a crazy ride, but we're in it together. You you have a daughter, Sarina, right? Her name is Sarina. Yes, yes. What did she teach you about the power of making videos online? So this was interesting. It it actually started as a challenge between her and me because she she's thirteen and um, you know, kids at this age, our teenagers at this age, they uh, are so good um, with short videos. So I watched her and her friends making all these like, you know, um, the fun videos and dance videos and, and take, on their private accounts on TikTok. And and I was like, oh, this is cool. And she was like, mom, this is for kids. And I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think like it had it's, it's had one billion download <laughs> in the past year and I don't think this is for kids so it started as like a this fun challenge between us and um you know I I started it and soon I learned nope it's not for kids there are lots of adults and there's lots of things that can be done in this world that we can all contribute to is she uh, enthusiastic or pissed off that her mom is doing so well on uh, social media (laughs) well she's gonna kill me after listening to this video but uh (laughs) um I think kind of pissed off uh, because like when I go pick her up at school, like all the kids know me because I'm the, the mom on TikTok <laughs> <Right>. and <laughs> it's interesting. Anyway, so I dedicated my book to her because it came out of a TikTok journey and um, hopefully one day um, she'll, I don't know if she's proud secretly or not, but she doesn't show it. <laughs> I mean, just before we get into your story, it, just in terms of the way you're perceived these days, whether it's by your daughter's friends or by um, people out there around the world seeing you on social media, I mean, you were a so you were a competitive swimmer. You were an athlete when you came from Iran at the age of sixteen. You subsequently go into the healthcare industry. You're this entrepreneur. Is it is it strange for you to be seen as a a political or or social activist these days? Uh, I I don't know, like all I see um, are people thanking me for what I'm doing. Um, So I'm I'm not sure what people think. But I think when you put yourself out there like this, you can't really think what other people think, you know, like you just do everything out of the goodness of your heart. And I think people see whether you're genuine or not. And um, I have been nothing but genuine because I, you know, like and the everything that I've done ever since pandemic, I've tried to use my entire background, which led to where I am today, um, to inspire and help people. Well, I mean, you're certainly um, 
hardworking. I, mean, I, I can't keep up with the, I mean, your output is amazing in terms of the videos that you, that you do, given that you have these other things in your life that you're also working on. Let me ask you then about, um, I suppose to begin about growing up in Iran. Um, in your book and, and in a video you posted in, in September, you referenced that you were born in Iran in, in the year of the Islamic Revolution uh, and subsequently had a childhood that included having to cover your hair in elementary school and being banned from singing and dancing and listening to music publicly, never learning to interact with boys and getting harassed by morality police. These are all things we know about the suppressive environment in Iran over the last 44 years, especially for women. But how aware were you of your freedoms being curbed when you were a kid growing up in those environments? I wasn't. And that's why I'm so mad right now. And I'm really speaking for all the years that we couldn't speak, you know, because I was year, I was born the year of revolution. So I don't know anything before that. So when you don't have a reference point, it is what it is, right? And um you know, it, it was hard growing up in Iran because it was, you know, it was eight years of war and having classrooms underground in shelters and um, every time like leaving a house as a teenager. And part of me, because I have a teenage daughter right now, I look at her life and so much freedom and how we grew up as kids and teenagers. And every time like so many, there were so many, so many occasions where um, I, um, was picked, not just picked on, I was taken to like Vozara, which is a jail for um, like wearing red pants for like, like I was a kid, you know, or why are you wearing these shoes? Like, you know, they would, they would ask you to go home because they didn't like your shoes. You know, it was just harassment day after day. And the whole morality police experience, I have so many stories about it that it's I can literally write a comic book on it because right. like you leave the house and there is a bus there and they're like, get in the bus. So you kind of knew like you just have to get in the bus, you know, and it just you be, you become numb to it because you're just it's just your day to day reality. And it's the it, 80s and the 90s. And so you don't have the Internet. So you don't have a daily dose of of seeing exactly how kids are living in other places in the world. You just assume this is the reality. This is the reality. And, um, you know, we, we traveled as a family to Europe and stuff. So, we, you know, as we started getting older, we knew what's happening. And, um, you know, we, we, we immigrated with the family here. And now with everything that's happening um, with this uprising, I feel like everything just spilled out and all the all the years and like ev and and keep asking why why didn't we say anything and why did that happen and why did they have to you know pick on us so much and so there's a lot of anger and the, the inner child fighting it's 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 interesting I've, it's been such a journey the last few months doing these interviews and talking to people who um not just when you say it was suppressed in you, but in a lot of cases, a lot of people actually detached themselves from Iran, just said, I, I have nothing to do with that. I don't want to even think about it. And, and now all these emotions come to the fore because um, it gets it gets very personal. Um, t tell me about the decision to move to Canada. What 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 um, what was the precipitant for that? 
Well, that, that was one of the reasons, uh, because the safety issue, obviously, because as, as a girl, every time you leave the house, you don't know if they're going to come back or not, you know, um, so as safety, um, their harassment, like future education, having a good, you know, future. So those were all the reasons um, that my family wanted to move, immigrate. It's tough too, you know, I was just thinking as you were talking about Iran, you know, we've, we've spent years um, living this contradiction too, where we as, I mean, this is a program that is based on um, conversations with to and about the Iranian diaspora. So it's it's inside baseball, if you will. We're both, we're two Iranian, Iranians talking about this. But I, I, I've always had a fear as well at the same time of saying all the things you just said about growing up in Iran because to to a non-Iranian to somebody who doesn't know anything about Iran because you know you don't want that to be interpreted as this uh this horrible place meaning that the culture and the people and all of that gets thrown into these stereotypes that we don't want to um underscore do you, do you know what I mean it's 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 been very confusing and it's I guess one of the nice things about the last six months is to have the liberation of of chanting in the streets so that people around the world see that Iranians are not the regime of Iran uh, and are much more than that and want and want this change. Absolutely. And I think now the whole world knows that, which is which is great. And and to your point, I think a lot of the things that <clears throat> became norm for us, um, understanding that how abnormal it was, you can like when you when you say some of the stories and, and you laugh at it because they're ridiculous and uh, you see the reaction in the non-iranian faces they're like they're like oh my god that is not normal right and then you realize oh my god that was not yeah and it still isn't i mean i i try and i try and do that all the time because as iranians you can't walk your dog this is insanity you know you can't play rock music this is this is crazy i mean it's not you know and and of course people have to live their normal lives so this all becomes normalized because you can't just be walking around in outrage 24/7 but but it is insane it it is not normal it isn't the way people should be living right Absolutely. And, you know, like the, the recent dance uh, with the calm down music that's been happening, the, the, the new trend. I asked my daughter to to do it with her friends um, so we can show that the Iranian Canadians are supportive. And she said, what's so unique about that? Um, and I said, because girls in Iran can't dance. And she's like, no, you're joking. You're joking. I just don't think. And, and that's one of the reasons I want to inspire the younger generation, the younger generation Iranian girls that are growing outside of Iran to actually understand the um, and appreciate uh, what they have, because some of the things that we have, we take so for granted mm. that other people in different parts of the world don't have. When you come to Canada, after you end up in the West, you you end up studying human kinetics and then you pursue this master's in cardiac rehab and you work as a clinician for over 15 years. What what did you most learn by working in the private Canadian healthcare system? Good question. Um, well, obviously I saw a lot of patients and a lot of the manifestations of disease um, that first of all, mental health and physical health are not separate from each other, 
right? And um, I think after pandemic, the whole stigma in, with mental health um, went, not went away, but it's, it's better, like it's easier for people to talk about it. Um, but a lot of the um, problems that people have, um, physical conditions and symptoms that they have, um, it comes from mental health too, or vice versa. So they're totally related. And um, also, um, most people are not proactive about wellness. They only get help when they're sick or something is broken. Yeah. So th that's the main reason I created Prompt Health because, um, and I keep talking about it, and I, and I still think people are not proactive because we wait when it's too late, right? And um, just like, you, you know, you don't have to wait for your car to be broken, you just take it for right, a regular right, right. our bodies. But were, were you, sorry, was the insinuation that wellness is not only about physical health, but mental health, were you suggesting that in the private healthcare industry or the Canadian healthcare industry, that mental element of it was has not always been at the forefront that you that that it's sort of like let's deal with whatever's going on physically and send the person back out there without dealing with the mental side well you know i was working in a private uh clinic that, that's one of the pioneers of private health in canada that was um later on acquired by a larger organization and we offered a variety of services um to uh, look at the person as a whole, right? So there were um, so many different services, not just medical, but um, alternative and uh, counseling and life coaching and different things. Um, and we had the luxury of time to spend more time with these people as opposed to five minutes in and out. And during these times, you, you see that um, people have there's there's so many things going on and they're all like related and it can't be solved by one person it sometimes it requires a team of mm. people and they're not necessarily sure where to start you know i've i've uh had a lot of cancer in my family it seems to be a something that um weaves through both sides of my uh parents families tell me about the effect that your your mom having cancer had on you well, that that was really hard and um you know she had two cancers uh, back to back uh, so within 10 years she uh, went through two cancers and radiation and then all the treatments after that and um i'm the older daughter with three younger brothers um so it it was tough because it was almost like you know we, we thought we lost our mom and um she is such a strong woman and i think i get all my, I would say, bravery from her. Uh, and even through all this uprising, uh, she's the one who's like, we all have to, we have to be together and, you know, like um, all those things. So uh, that was one of the, that, that was a tough experience. I thought that was, I, I, I was partly asking because I thought, I felt like that was a, that was, that was part of what initiated you to want to do more uh, in the healthcare space, was it not? Um, I started that before my mom. That was one of the reasons I, I did the health app. I created the health app. Mm. But um, the reason I studied human kinetics was mostly because of my athletic background. Um, when you grow up um, as, you know, being involved in any sport, um, it's a natural desire to want to learn more about the human body, right? 
And, and that's why I went into human kinetics, which is the study of human body. And um, then later on became interested in heart and went and um, did my master's in that. And, um, and then later on, I, I completely changed direction and went and did the MBA like mm. a few, a few, later on. And that led to creation of putting it all together and creating this app. Um, and I think the app came from uh, my experience in healthcare for all those years and seeing the gap where people had a difficulty finding the care they need. Also my mother finding the care they need. So like the personal and professional experience of, of where I saw the gap in our healthcare system. Gotcha, gotcha. Tell me what you use when you talk about wellness practices uh, a lot in, in your discourse is is the term holistic wellness. And um, I, I think I know what that is, but I, I thought maybe I would ask you to define it. It's looking at uh, body as a whole. So the whole mind body. And so you, a lot of people hear the, um, the term mind, body, soul approach. So it's looking um, our wellness is not one dimensional, it's multidimensional, which is like physical, mental, emotional, social, spiritual health. So they're all connected, right? In order to feel well, uh, we are not only supposed to take care of our physical body, but also our mental health, but also our emotional health. So that's why the, our relationships matter. What happens in our environment matters. It's not just what we eat and what how we exercise, but it's also how we interact and gotcha. uh, the kind of environment we're in. And that's the holistic approach because it's looking at the body as the person, as a whole, what's happening as a whole. Um, Hedia, tell me now, how and when did you decide, do you remember the moment when you decide to jump in and start making videos about the uprising? I mean, I, you've said that you felt compelled to do so. Um, w was there a particular moment uh, after the killing of Masa Amini where you said, okay, here I go? Yes. And um, I don't know if I should share this, but uh, I will. Um, so my ex-husband came and told me you have to do this and he said you have a voice that's been really powerful on social media go for it i support you and like you're responsible to do this and I, until that moment i was kind of unsure because i was like i don't want to get political and you know i i'm i'm here to talk about wellness and um what do i have to do with political and and he said like you have a voice it's powerful like you've been you have a platform like it's your responsibility to do this and um and i was like okay and i said but you know like and he said not a lot of people talk because people are afraid and i'm like yeah and and i know because people are afraid of consequences and he said start with that just say that so i came on and i said do you know why people don't talk? Because for 44 years, we've been trained to not talk. Mm. And I'm here to tell all the stories that haven't been told. And how did that feel? It was it was liberating. And that's when I couldn't stop because I just I just kept going. And it was like day and night of like all the stuff that's been happening. Um, and still happening and i'm just kind of going with it because i'm like okay well we're going all the way to the end 
And I have no doubt that there will be an end because no injustice hasn't gone forever. Were you, were you surprised by the virality of some of your posts? I mean, your videos have been, a few of them have been seen over, you know, millions of times. I mean, that's a, uh, you've had quite an impact. Did that come as a surprise to you? Um, you know, I, I honestly thought like Instagram is dead. Like I was surprised by how like crazy it went on Instagram. Um, I, I had no idea what to expect. Uh, I, I definitely did not expect it. It was just, I did it out of my pure heart. And, um, and I went from this platform to that platform, just, just making sure the voice is, is heard. And I even went back to TikTok and created another, um, you know, account talking about Iran. And that's also under warning. But <laughs> I just did everything I can to get the voice out. And and it's working. And I'm, I'm grateful. Um, and I, I hope, I, not, not, not only I hope, I'm 100% sure there will be an end. It might take longer that we want, uh, but there will be an end. We've talked about uh, mental health a, a bit through this chat. Uh, let me ask you about mental health vis-a-vis -vis the Iranian community. I mean, you give lots of advice on anxiety and and how and coping. Uh, how do you see, from your vantage point, in as an Iranian Canadian in Vancouver, um, but being very active in terms of interaction with the Iranian community, I suppose around the world, how do you see the community affected by anxiety in recent months? It's crazy. And, uh, you know, I did one video and I said uh, a lot of us Iran and it was during the time that there were there was a lot of executions happening. So it affected my personal mental health for sure. Like there was a time that I like found myself so like I had nightmares, I couldn't sleep and um, I felt I I don't want to say depressed. I've never been depressed, but I felt that um I'm not myself, you know, and I was like, I, I cannot announce another execution. So I need to take a step back and like do something else and come back to this. So I switched topic, like I switched to mental health and I was like, I woke up that morning and I said, a lot of us Iranians waking, wake up to bad news every day. And this is affecting our mental health and everybody connected with that. And, um, and I realized, okay, like, it's not just me. Um, so I started interviewing um some of the top psychologists that we have in the community and um sharing um some of the you know awareness uh psychology videos um and everybody seemed to connect with it so it's it's an epidemic and it's not just what was happening um you know after pandemic to non-iranians but more like to a lot of iranians right now because of all the bad news and everything that's happening do you have a personal coping um ritual or mechanism do you uh, do you take a pill do you do you do yoga what's your what's your do you turn off the phone what's your way of dealing i need to turn off the phone more <laughs> so i still need to practice that um i go for a run uh, like run is kind of my uh meditation um i i i find that really helpful i go for a walk do you bring the phone when you run uh, no, <laughs> I don't. So I go for like, yeah, so nature, I think is super helpful. Like just going outside for like a walk or um, a run is very helpful for me. I've tried to do meditation. I uh, haven't been super successful at it because I have a hard time just sitting still. Um, but anything like there are different things that work for different people. It could be 
meditation, it could be breathing, um, running, talking with friends, seeking help, like different things that can help you, um, you know, just trying different things to see what helps. I went um, on a wellness retreat in December and I, I, I tried different breathing practices there for the first time and I found it super helpful. So I'm trying to do more of that whenever I can. And um, I share some of them that are useful sometimes. It's also, I, I find it interesting. I mean, I've had this issue with our program where once you start getting into the, the practice of um, wanting to help and share information and make videos and all of all that say you're doing in social media, then you start to feel like you have some responsibility. I mean, t there isn't actually anyone telling you that, you know, nobody's going to be incredibly mad at you if you don't post about the person who just got executed. But you start to feel that need that that and and then you feel guilty or shame or something if you're not posting uh, because there's things happening. Have you felt those those feelings? And have you been able to forgive yourself if you're I mean, you're not you're just one person. You're not Amnesty International. You can't do everything. I right? know totally. And and I I try try to keep up with it and I, I did everything I, it I I have had no life in the past six months like zero life because um there's so many different things I'm doing um and and my content on TikTok is different from content on Instagram and there is my business there is my daughter there's like there's so many different things that you're trying to cover and there's only so many hours in the day right um so I think you still need to take the time to take care of yourself and i try to share some of that too with people in terms of self-care and you know mental health um because i know it's not just me it's everyone but i think just listening to your intuition and that's what i've been doing every time i post something i just listen to my gut and i'm like i feel like this is needed right now you know and i just do that in and amongst all the things you're doing tell tell me about this book that you've just released um uh i i had fun reading it what, what why did you have the idea to ask a bunch of questions and crowdsource the answers so it all started with um uh one night when i you know i was create i was trying to create awareness about wellness uh because of this app that i built and that's when i started act getting active on social media and um I realized when I talk about health, no one really cares. So one night, late night, I just like picked up my phone and I just like talked right into it. And I said, does anyone care about health or am I wasting my time? <laughs> and that video like blew up and people were like, ask more questions, ask more questions. And <laughs> we're, we're here, we're, we're listening, we're listening. And um and I realized like, it, you know, people want to be engaged. It's not just me talking to people all the time. They want to talk back. So as we had, um, I was going live often. So as I had, we were having these live conversations, different topics were coming up. And there were a lot of topics around mental health relationship, um, different uncertainties in life, personal development, that kind of stuff. So all the questions came out of the live conversations that I was having with people and the questions that people were asking me. So I turned the questions back at them and I was like, here's a question. What do you guys say? And then there were thousands of of answers um, by, by people, uh, which was quite interesting. And um, when the question and so then every day, like not every day, like every few days, I would get on and um, 
and I start with question, you know, what would you do for this question? What would you do for that? And uh, soon I became for heaviest questions. People were looking forward to the questions and answers because I would, a couple of days later, I would make another video with the answers. Mm. And then I thought it would be good to put this all together and give it back to people and say, here's all the questions I ask and this is your answers and just a bit of my take on it um, with it. And that's how it all happened. It's a, it's a real lesson in how there is both um, beauty and education in simplicity. The questions are relatively simple. You know, they, they're, they're sort of um, obvious ones, but, but put together and put into a book and, and, they're 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 so uh, provocative. I think I left you a message saying, you know, um, as I was reading the book and going, you the the questions. I found myself asking myself the questions that you were asking people, uh, and it was quite a meditation. It was kind of like, a, I mean, there's questions like, uh, what would you say if there were no consequences to say whatever you want? You know, and you sort of go, yeah. oh, I got to think about this. What? How am I going to answer this? And and yeah. it's a very oh. simple question, but it's actually a, quite a profound one because it digs yeah. at you know at your inner self to sort of say, well, who is the authentic me? What could what would I say? Who who do I want to be? Why do I not say it? What are the consequences? I mean, there's a lot that comes through this, right? And so it's it's really well done. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for that. that yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was quite a learning experience for myself. Um, and I think the answers that were provided were so honest because it was on a, it was anonymous, right? Like it gave people a safe space um, to anonymously say something. And, um, and some of them were crazy because like the question that was, when did you know it was over? And like, there were like people just like let it all out. And it was like, almost like a healing experience because you could finally just let it all out, you know? And um, so then, so then I started thinking like, how can, how can I ask more thought provoking questions? Like, when was the last time you smiled? Um, when was the first time you did something for for the first time? You know, so all those questions, because it's so easy with how crazy life is to get on an autopilot and just work like a nine to five, yeah. five day weekend, just looking forward to the weekend and like not thinking um, and just autopilot. Right. And when we're more self-aware by asking some questions, um, I think we can live a more fulfilled life. Well, I'm so uh, grateful for the time that you're giving us today. So I'm going to end off with uh, three questions for fans of yours. They can learn more about Hedia right now, as I turn your book around on you and ask you questions that you <laughs> inspired by your book. Um, I, one part of the book, you address the question, what would you tell your younger self? Always a great question in an interview. And your personal answer, you, you describe that in the book is, is to quote unquote, be bold. And um, this is kind of one of your mantras, right? And, and it makes yeah. sense. Uh, and you seem very strong and confident and bold in your pronouncements and knowledge of self. And we've learned today that some of that comes from your mom, you said. Uh, my question is, how do you believe you could be bolder? Right now? I, I don't think I could be any bolder right now because, I, because I'm just basically like risking a lot of things by doing what I'm doing on social media, I pretty much like can't go to Iran anymore. Um, but I'm trying to 
show mostly my daughter and and all her friends the younger generation that you can do you have the power to do anything you want right like you have all the freedom in the world you have the power if you have the will um the willpower you can do it all there is nothing stopping you and uh so one of my main goals is to really inspire the younger generation your your website features that slogan be the best version of you what what is the best version of hedia uh the best version of me is um i'm hoping that i can inspire and empower people and even knowing that I have touched one life uh, makes me happy. And the final question to you. At one point in your book, you talk about asking oneself what our purpose is. That's a great question. What is a simple one again? What is your purpose? But it's it's a profound one too. It, it, Hedy, I'm, I'm curious if your purpose has changed in any, in any way since the uprising in Iran began in September. My purpose, I'm, I'm living my purpose right now. And that's why I'm so happy. And I work, I do what I do so tirelessly because um, I've, I think there is a reason um, we all end up doing what we're doing and everything that happens in our life. And everything that led to where I am today from the healthcare background to like, you know, immigration to um, my professional and personal life to today, um, there was a reason for all of that and um and i'm i'm living it and i'm not letting nothing is stopping me we have all the freedom here in canada and um i'm using my voice to speak for the voiceless in iran and um and empower um anyone and inspire anyone that i can and that makes me happy it's really great to get, great to talk to you. I thank you for the time. I thank you for all the, the work you've been doing. And uh, I look forward to doing it again. Do, do come visit us in Toronto. Come, let's do the interview in the studio next time. Absolutely. And I want to thank you, uh, for everything that you do. I listen to work podcasts and um, I enjoy your episodes. And thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself and say hi to Sarina. <laughs> thank you so much. Khodafis. Okay. This is Rook, episode 249, six months and counting the uprising. My next guest is an Iranian-German activist, Furuk Kanani, is a PhD student in the Social Sustainability uh, Department at the University of Kassel, but she may be known to many Iranians inside and outside of Iran for her eloquent and outspoken appearances in media, particularly during this uprising in such places as Manoto TV, BBC Persian, and Iran International. She has been fighting for the rights of women, refugees, and LGBTQ people for years. And right now, Furuk Kanani joins me from Frankfurt today. Hello. Hello, Jean. Thank you so much for your invitation. 
it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. And I know I happen to know that you speak a gazillion languages, so we could be doing this in Arabic or Spanish or German or various other languages. But for the for the sake of our show and our audience and and me, we'll do it in English. Okay. Yeah, let's do it in English. Even though I have to confess that my English is not that perfect, so I hope that your audience didn't get like don't get any problem by understanding me. No, your English is is just fine. I've seen you do interviews in English. I know it's uh, I know it's fine. Um, Furukh, uh, let, let's get right to it. In the aftermath of the killing of Masson Amini back in September, you said, "Now I'm going to war," and I think it's a it's a sentiment that many Iranians around the world would understand. Do Do you feel like you've been at war for the last six months? Well. I have this feeling for more than six months. It's like exactly at the moment that I left the country or even before, I think this feeling of being a warrior started in 2009. Like I really felt it in 2009 when I've seen everything that we have been through. Like is this political games that people um, got back to the days in 2009 in Green Movement and after that, how the protests went on and how uh, the regime totally virtually tried to suppress people. And I think the very soft point for uh, for me were, uh, was when exactly Nedal Sultan got killed. And that was exactly the moment that I thought, oh my God, I cannot breathe anymore in this air, in this atmosphere. And um, I remember that I was all the time in this, even though I, I didn't even participate in um, election, but um, I thought maybe it's a it's a hopeful change. Um, when I left the country and I experienced um, so-called free society, then I figured it out. Wow, that's a big difference. Um, having access to all the information or almost all the information that you, as a free citizen, have to have. Mm. It was always something that we um, try to get, we never did. So I think that started back to the days when I came out. And even though I really just just really did my best to stay just a researcher and a scientist, but it was just not possible. Someone needed to talk. When you say you had access to information that you didn't in a free society that you didn't have before, do you mean that when you were in Iran, you didn't even know how repressed you were? Or do you mean that you learned more about Iran when you left? Well, no, no, no. You always know how repressed you are. That's not something that's so one just being in a, I mean, we're human, we are not fish. Let's say, okay, now we are, we are not in the sea, so we don't know how free or not free we are. Actually, it was the information that I got about Iran, like the second option that you um, just mentioned. Um, knowing a lot of information that was not free to access back to the days when we were in Iran. And um, that helped me, especially when I compared the human rights situation in European countries. Um, let's say Germany that I was resident in and um, the life conditions that we, especially women had in Iran. I'm not saying that men had better life. I have been so many men struggling for freedom as well, but um, it, it was moments that I was thinking, I mean, I went really deep in a depression phase, like for a couple of weeks, just by comparing. And I was wondering, okay, if I keep silent, they're gonna talk about it. People in Iran are like in danger. 
if they start um, complaining or even saying something or objecting, the first thing that will come is that they're not free anymore. Jail or any kind of other punishment will be um, waiting for them. So who's going to talk? So I really wanted to get the chance to go back to Iran whenever I want because I came here as a student with a visa and ooh, it was what it was actually was with Iranian um, like Islamic Republic passport, which made it totally dangerous for me to get into political activities. Yes, but somehow I felt I need to do it. Someone should do it. Well, it's it's interesting because. Um, your story is, I mean, you, you, you said earlier, uh, you're a researcher, you're a scientist, um, and there is this story of how, I mean, we know you, I know you only as this eloquent and outspoken activist today, but, but you know, going back um, 15 years, you're this 25-year-old student working in landscaping in Tehran at that time of the Green Movement, and you sort of almost by accident become this activist because of your outrage at what's happening, and that feels like very much the story um I mean, with you, it's been a few more years, but we, we hear from a lot of people in the last six months even, including the guest I just had on before you. She was, you know, doing work that really wasn't uh, you, the work of an activist, you'd say, and now has become known as this activist um, against the Islamic Republic. It's almost like this regime... Um, induces or provokes the people of the country into necessarily needing to be activists to try and deal with what's going on. Is that basically what happened to you in 2009? Well, yeah, partially. Um, in 2009, the sparkle started. But when I felt really that I should do something was in 2017, when the first recent movement, which was actually the so-called John Bishop Benzine or uh, Day Ma, we called it, um, started. It was in December 2016, January 2017, if I'm right. And um, I remember uh, we, we, we got really crazy that when, when we saw that people are just getting killed because they demonstrated. And it was like a long time after um, 2009 it was like less and less hope for any coming uprising because everything was suppressed the uh, presidential um, election were very well participated and people like me totally well not totally but almost got close to maybe lose the hope on iran's political right. situation and back to the days i was not active in uh, social science so I remember when I started tweeting and writing and getting active and informing about um, once a mother of those who was killed during this uprising wrote me and just randomly, I could understand that she's just randomly writing whoever was writing for Iran right now, especially those who are living abroad, just please be our voice. My child is killed. I I changed my Twitter account from then, so I don't remember whose is what. I didn't save it, and um, well, maybe that was not right. Maybe maybe she writes me again once, but I promised her I will, and that was the moment. And I promised her I never will take off my black um, until she gets hers. And then she said she's not going to, unless um, the Islamic Republic is gone. So. Here we go. I'm in black. <laughs> wow, uh, that is it's, it's quite a commitment. Just on the on the on the war, um, I don't know if it's an allegory or it's, or it's a reality. I mean, we, we could call it a war. We, we've called it a war before between basically between this regime and the people of Iran. Uh, 
something you've talked about in one of your interviews that I thought was really interesting is the fact that uh, even if this wasn't a war, the actions of this of this regime create the conditions where it is an ongoing war. You talk about when you imprison 20,000 people for, um, for simply expressing their dissent in recent months, or you kill or torture or injure innocent people, including children during an uprising, those people will never forget this and it will only grow the war against the regime. Can you speak to that? Well, it is a war, even though we are not barriers, if, even though um, not all of us at least, and even though we are not ready for it, and even though we are not armed for it. It is a war, it's imposed to us, and we have to fight back or we have to lose. So this is like a social decision, I would say, to stand up against it or just to go under. And I believe the social intelligence of Iranian nations so far uh, show that they are struggling, but they're standing against it. It's too difficult, I, I have to admit. It's so weird, but still very difficult to understand that we are fighting a totalitarianism, which is a regime who is not only a dictator, but also a very weird com combination of all the bad things that we had in the world's history, considering like the East Germany, plus Nazism in Germany, maybe, plus ISIS. Hmm. Only three together. When they come together, then they result in something that we know as the Islamic Republic in Iran. We have, um, we have not only a dictator inside the country, we have a regime who doesn't hesitate to expand his terror attacks all around the world. You just need to Google simply a couple of words like Islamic Republic, yeah. terror history, and then you get the results that is like, wow, yeah. what did this regime do? all in the time in the world. It's just crazy. But if it's a war, Furuk, uh, how do you how do you respond to somebody saying, how can it even be a war where on one side you have people who are armed with nothing, in a lot of cases kids, with nothing but some rocks or homemade devices, and on the other side a full military and bombs and and warplanes and ammunition and, and uh, I mean, it doesn't seem like a very fair fight. How, how, how can we even engage in that war? What do you respond to somebody saying that? This is not a fair war. I never said so, and I don't believe that anyone would even believe if I say it's a fair and we are both uh, at the same level armed. No, we are people. The only thing that we are having just in front of such a, um armed, terrorist, brutal system is our blood and flesh. We don't have anything else. We have maybe stones. If so, if we have any, and we just have um, defense facilities like we have our water bottles just to wash our faces. We have our lighters. I don't know what we have against them, nothing. But they're, but like our voices and um, our passion and our dignity, what else do we have? And that's actually makes it for me a very decent war, to be honest, when I look at how much, how much people are fighting for. It's not easy. Hmm to be an Iranian when you're coming from such a country that you actually could die for. You just love it because it's a lovable country, but it's like under the rule of such a regime. That's that's like always a 
a complex situation, a paradoxical situation, because I would say every Iranian, doesn't matter if you're living inside or outside of the country, is suffering from. Can I ask you, I mean, a personal question, if you, um, given that you, you talk about how passionate you are about this and, and your love for Iran, obviously, what what has it been like working for women and equal opportunities in Germany in recent years? I know you're grateful and invigorated by doing this kind of work, but is there part of you that has wished you were doing it in Iran? Is there part of you that wants to be on the streets right now? Um, I think that's the, that's the interesting part of being um, a migrant. Um, being a mig- migrant is amazing, especially if you're the first generation. Um, well, children having migrant family have totally different stories, but um, being a migrant is a very unique experience because you're, I mean, at least I'm talking about myself, and I'm sure pretty much that a lot of people would think and feel like me. We are always facing um, a parallel world. Like right now I'm talking to you here. I just need to close my eyes for a couple of seconds and then bam, I'm back, I'm back home. I'm thinking about Iran. I'm thinking about my memories. I'm thinking about the family that I had there and everything, everything, the, the, the landscape, the atmosphere, the smells, the people. And now that we're just shortly before the Nowruz, I'm thinking about this very, very interesting um, atmosphere before Nowruz that everyone is just now um, in hurry to buy. And I know that it's not the case anymore, com- um, knowing about, like, considering the f- financial and economical situation of people back to the um, after, or better to say, uh, post embargo situation. But still, all these memories. And um, when I came here, I figured it out immediately that, oh, being a migrant is not easy either, even though it's like a, you know, a developed country and they're trying their best to just eliminate any kind of uh, discrimination, but it's still there. Right. It's still there. So I think I really need to do it here too, just as a part of my contribution for the people who have the same story as mine. Well, and, and also, I mean, there's no... There's no doubt that it's not like, you know, there aren't equality issues or things to do in in other places of the world, including Germany. But one of the things that has come up, I would say, I guess, in the last six months, quite a bit in terms of talking to people around the world, Iranians, is for, for better or for worse, and this is part of our psychological disposition, is a feeling of guilt. You know, like that, I mean, I feel it and I didn't even grow up in Iran. I mean, you know, that that somehow I wish I was there doing something. I, I wish I was in front of that bullet that hit Keon, you know, or, or to do something that rather than, and of course we find our ways to contribute. I do this program, you do all the work that you're doing from Germany. Um, but uh, as somebody who's not that far removed from being in Iran and being an activist there, it must not always be easy for you. Oh, it's not easy at all. I think, um, I think it was, well, Masa Amini was not the first victims of Islamic Republic and its bloody, brutal um, rules. But the way that she died, it was a big shock to many of people. I mean, she she was not dead. She she got killed, better to say. She was murdered. Um, but, um, well, all this story really hit us. But something that really touched me was, I don't know why, but due to some reasons, probably just I'm not even aware of, um, 
the murder of Sarina really touched me. And then that was the moment that I couldn't help it to cry. And I was just wishing maybe I should go back. Maybe, maybe I should do something. Maybe better be dead than alive. And seeing all this like teenagers getting killed because, because people like me didn't do their job better. And all these bad feelings that I had all the time. But um, it got the most when the executions started. And well, as well, we could see that it will come, and we could see that that's like the the like a slap in the face of the nation. So they will start executing because that gives us a shock, especially the people that they chose to kill. Um, Said Mohammed Hosseini, Kian. Wow, that was like really, really um, a fatal hit for me, and I, I I barely could control myself. That was the first time that I cried in front of the camera. That was the first time that I cried in front of people when I made a speech in Berlin um, in one demonstration, and um, I I'm, I'm sure many people filmed it. I really didn't care at the moment because I thought, okay, wow, that's I'm here, I'm almost safe. And they're not. But then, uh, well, then I've noticed that I'm not safe here because, um, well, the police of Germany and many other um, European countries announced that we need to take care because the French Islamic Republic is now spreading his agents all around the world, especially in Europe, that yeah. have been always the good alliances of them. So then I feel like, honestly, if it's relief, it's like, okay, well, I'm not safe here, too, so better. <laughs> you you may not be safe. I mean, uh, whether you're safe or not, you did jump into it pretty quickly. I mean, one, one week after the death of Massa Amini, you were there at a public protest in Germany cutting your hair, which I understand you hadn't cut for many years, and uh, and and unafraid, I suppose, to, to really um, make a stand. Uh, t- tell me just because you you just mentioned it what was it what was it about the the death of Sarina that so affected you well um Sarina could be my daughter i'm i'm not that old but if i was like a mother in my very young ages i could have a daughter as um as old as her and Sarina was exactly the girl that I wish I had. She was intelligent, she was active, she was happy, she was wise, and that's probably a lot of mother's wish. And when I, um, the more I watched her videos, the more I felt, oh my God, she was a dream. Yeah. She was she was something different that we lost her and um, that really touched me. And I. I, I really struggled to get back on my feet because I needed to be in front of cameras like every day. And we cannot do this to people. We cannot just be crying. We cannot be moaning. We cannot be all the time, you know. It's okay, we're human too, but um, we need to take a more professional um, feature, figure, but, or at least facade. That's, that's how it is. So. People don't get uh, down. So it was, I think it was her personality. Well, not to mention her beauty was also beyond the words. So I think, I think everything about her, the way she talked, the way she was killed, everything about her really touched me. Furuk, on the question of security and your own security being there in the middle of Europe and um, you might say the same as in, in Toronto, despite the fact that there's a big community here that is obviously united against the regime. There's also a lot of other kind of uh, people here, uh, uh, including agents of the regime and, and um, um, 
you know, people who are connected in different ways to Iran. There's your security, but then there's this question of the security of those who are close to us, our families, our, our people back in Iran, and if you're outspoken, what happens to them? And you've said something interesting in this in this regard with uh, about putting your family back in Iran in danger by speaking out. Uh, again, something that many of us worry about and are always cautioned about. You know, you said, should I go silent to protect my family in Iran? They are like any other Iranians, so I go on talking. Can you can you unpack that statement for me? What what do you mean by that? Um, well, this is always a feeling that um, well that bothers because um, the most profit that you can do is to go on fighting, to hope that you finally is going to or eventually is going to get rid of this, the regime, so everyone gets free, everyone gets what it deserves. So. Um, I really don't know um, if I could protect them better uh, if I was um, if I just stopped what I'm doing right now. I think I think you cannot just pick someone, you know, just okay because um, she's my sister. I'm going to protect her, and so I'm not fighting. So what about those twenty two thousand people who are in prison? To be honest, um, most of the time I hear sometimes like you know statements, comments that I really don't like, like, why would you do this? Who told you to do this? And so on. My answer is always something like the same. I would say, I'm not doing this for you. There are more than 22,000 people who even don't know most of their names. Um, in prison, we have been like, just in the recent uprising, we, have, we had like more than 500 people dead we have more more than 500 people losing both or just one of their eyes. I'm fighting for them. I'm not fighting just for a random person who would survive anyway um, if Islamic regime is ruling or not. There are so many people who deserve to be supported, to be fought for. So I'm doing this for them. So yeah, it's important for me to protect my family, but. What can I do um, more than that? If this is something going on to happen, I mean, I'm not saying that there are 100% agreeing with what I'm doing. If so, they would be fighting too in the way that I am. Yeah. But it's their responsibility. We're two different, uh, like we're people, we're different people, and they should take responsibility for what they do. And I take my responsibilities. I mean, this this isn't just a debate that happens with those of us in the diaspora versus those who are closer to the front lines inside Iran. It happens even inside families in Iran. I, I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but, you know, in, in my family in, in, back in Iran, there's a, you know, there was a debate between, say, one of my younger cousins who wanted to go out on the streets and, and demonstrate uh, and the older um, cousins or, or parents saying, no, you shouldn't do that because it's dangerous. And so, and, and you know, this created quite a, a debate in the family because it's like, well, if the young person wants to go and do that, why, why are you going to stop them? But on the other hand, obviously, we're all sympathetic to the idea that you're, you don't want your younger um, daughter to go and, and be put in danger. Um, it's a difficult debate that I suspect a lot of Iranians inside Iran have been grappling with, maybe people who are listening to us right now. And it's probably at the root of why some of the demonstrations have, have not been as 
um, populated more recently because of that fear and because of the the older generations or the family or the the, the parents saying no you know we, we're not going to let you go out there it's, it's just too dangerous that's true however um considering the chemical poisoning that recently happened in the schools i really was wondering if this is happening to our children now while uh, they are exactly at the safest place or the supposed to be safest place that they should have been what else could stop us right now right. what is stopping us they're they're just okay if you're not fighting you're coming now to our children Right. School. So, you don't have to be in the street demonstrating to be attacked by chemicals. You can just be a schoolgirl in, in a school. I'm glad you actually brought that up because, I mean, that has, I can't really think of anything that's been more shocking and horrendous from this regime. There's quite a list, but how did you process that episode that we've been hearing about in recent weeks, the deliberate chemical attacks on schoolgirls? Um, well, honestly, um, First of all, I need to mention that, that that's the nature of a dictatorship. You being silent against it, against it um, doesn't protect you. It just makes you the next victim. That's a problem. So the sooner we get loud, the chances of rescuing ourselves from becoming dangerous is higher. So um, I think... I think there are a couple of theories why the Islamic regime did this to the children. And first of all, I should say that like many other people, we're almost sure that if the Islamic regime is not just doing this like directly to the children, they they are behind this. And um, there are several scenarios. Possibly they want just to, you know, um, give people a bit, you know, fear about the probably, um, the probably like coming or any possible um, uprising. Or since the um, economical situation is getting crazy, they wanted somehow just to distract people because it's it became really like like a bubble was about to explode, especially when the currency exchange rate has got so um, highly um, high, so they just couldn't control it. And the most, but well, the most important in my opinion is that. These schoolgirls were kind of one of our most, um, you know, brave, bravest barriers in this war, actually. The uprising, the, the, the schoolgirls, they were just like way too brave for me for being just teenagers. They're like, you know, they're even not 18. And most of them were just like really fighting. You just mentioned the name of Sarina. She was only 16. So I think that was a revenge too, if not the punishment, at least a revenge. So I think. It was a couple of scenarios that you could consider uh, when when it comes to the to the I would say the tragic um, crime of um, just poisoning schoolgirls and teenagers in this yeah. case. Farouk, you know how hard it is uh, working with and within the Iranian community, given that. Um, there is a tendency to pick apart everyone and everything, and we're seeing that on some levels with some of the reactions to some of the opposition um, leaders and um, uh, ideas that are coming up. Uh, I'm going to ask you in a moment about the Massa Charter and the, 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 uh, and, and some of the other things that, that are in the air right now, but if I were to ask you a general question, I mean, and probably an impossible one to, to answer, so forgive me, but how, how do we change 
the dysfunction in our community and engage in solidarity, especially in the coming months to try and um, um, come together against this situation in Iran? Um, So far, I've understood the worst um, mistake that we can do as political activists is to try to convince people to participate, to, to come along and to be active. We should do our part. I mean, that that's that's the most important thing. We should go on. We should go on. And if people say, if people just said that we are going on and we are doing really our contribution, they will join us. They will trust us. People understand. I mean, better than anything. And if we start fighting and just picking on each other, oh, you did this, you that, you do that, and just go on this, I would call it cat fight. People would also see this and totally will lose trust on us as well as hope. Um, they don't follow someone who just forgets who's the big enemy and starts picking on the other so-called barriers in this war. I mean, if I'm, I know we may not like all the techniques and um, strategies that we are using to find the same enemy, but that's that's us, that's human being. We don't think same, same, we don't feel same, and we just don't follow each other in the same way. I personally have like friends um, who we literally call ourselves like colleagues in a way we think um, against the Islamic regime, but we totally disagree on the way we are actually approaching our goals. So that's totally fine. Um, I don't say that politics is a fail to trust everyone. Well, then it's, it wouldn't be called politics, but at least we need to have a level of intelligence to understand I do my part and people will see it. And when I succeed, they will join me and they will go on. So I think the smart politicians, or better to say athletes in this, in this um, level, political activists should go on, doesn't look around, just go further, listen to all the arguments, but eventually he or she is one who should take the right decision. Um, okay. I mean, I, I, there's nothing you've said that I, I would disagree with, uh, but I still think that, uh, you know, even if somebody emerges that, um, you know, whether it's say Reza Pahlavi or, um, Masih Jod or somebody who, you know, who becomes the, the, the focal point of the, uh, of, of the, um, the voice of those outside of Iran, uh, you've got all this, you know, in social media, at least, you know, you're going to have a cohort of people going, I will not join with this person and that this person is a communist or this person is a separatist or this person I don't agree with monarchy or whatever. And um, I know that we have to work some of that out of our system. We can't just leave that for after the regime is toppled. But I do worry about some of the balkanization of our community because mm -hmm. the attacks on each other are so vociferous sometimes based on you know who we support or who 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 we believe should be the person who is um you know um taking the the for the foreground should be in the, the person leading things i don't know how we solve that I, I don't know what the answer to it is i i wonder if you have any um, wisdom around that um well there is certainly no like one answer to this but um i think 
Well, it's it's the matter of democracy. We have been suffering from the lack of democracy for so many years. We probably even forgot how to practice it now. And it's maybe the time to eventually come to this idea that the way towards democracy goes through the negotiation, argument, uh, talking. We need to talk to each other. We need to be open. We need to, um, we need to support, if not fully trust. And um, we, we need to be wise. We need to watch. We need to get our lessons and we need to pass. So um, I personally, I mean, if I talk to someone and I see that hmm, the argument, the discussion goes on in a wise way, so perfect. It's even if we don't like, you know, hundred um, person, we don't succeed to um, just became at the same page. But at the end of the day, we we have our goals achieved we we talked about something okay. we made it clear and we have audience who can decide to stand on which side and that's the, the point most of the time you cannot convince people because like someone in the case that you just mentioned like as an example someone has like a history of family fighting against like shah's um governmental system back to the days and got i don't know two months of prison or two years of prison he or she hates shah doesn't matter how much I argue about it yeah. or vice versa. You know, this, this is like sometimes so personal. So on this note, tell me, I mean, I, I, this Manchur, this uh, Massa Charter, um, mm. I guess it's it's an attempt, uh, you know, you could say to, to try and um, bring people together to try and put something on paper that uh, it can be a rallying point. I've, I've expressed some of my reservations about it and um, my hopes that it'll be... Um, um, built upon at least, or or um, that there'll be some correctives. But t- tell tell me about. I know you have some concerns because I've seen you talking about it on TV. Tell me about your concerns about the Massa Charter. Well, before uh, I, I go guess... to the concerns, I would say it has also positive points. It's the first time, well, or almost one of the most uh, biggest steps towards unity. We have something written on hand, even though that's not something that we imagined. Um, my concerns is like many others um people uh, talked about okay we uh, wanted to be called as the nation of iran in this charter it's not said um many people had problem with the logo they believe that it has like tendons to left or right or some other stuff and that it's way too much repeated um many criticizes the charter because um Apparently, it doesn't represent uh, everyone, especially those who are in favor of monarchies in Iran. And, um, and, 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 and it's like a lot of points which actually are true, and you cannot really see this um, with this lenses. But, but what I, I really think is, okay, you don't agree on it, talk about it, but pass. Don't put so much weight on it. And especially, the most important thing, we don't have much time in this fight against the Islamic regime. Islamic regime is expanding its um, international politics, alliances again, and I'm afraid um, before we even understand, he gonna, I believe, surprise us with uh, some so-called bad news again. Um, just, just imagine um, Iran is now, well, Islamic regime in Iran is now 
pretty much close or at least is bluffing about it um to not be um power and and do you know what it means if yeah. it comes up in a couple of months we are done we just don't have anything anymore to fight for yeah, yeah. over can i ask you a personal question i think you are you are a supporter of reza pahlavi yes well that's a so that's a tough question to answer um yeah, if, I mean, you don't have to answer if it's too difficult, but I, I, I was just curious whether you thought he should have signed on to that Manchur. Um, well, I told you I'm a supporter of who, but if you mean a political future, I think Reza Pahlavi is the cleanest person in the um, political uh, arena in Iran. Um, he doesn't have any connection to, to Islamic Republic. I mean, how could it be possible? And um, even doesn't have any connection to his father's regime. I mean, if if you if you just read his books, he is enough critical against um, um, Muhammad Reza Shah's uh, policies, and he got his lesson very carefully. He know what would come. I mean, he he has he's the one who experienced experienced everything that. A regime or a governor shouldn't. So he knows the best what could come after that if if he's not the one who he should be. For me, um, he is trustable. I I just could give you lectures why, and I'm sure a lot of people who could uh, prove me maybe wrong. Well, if I'm going to accept or not, that's another story. But um, I just think that Reza Pahlavi is. Um, national capital, really, and he knows it, and he has a big heart for Iran. And then this is something that we never should forget. We have been in a country, especially after the Islamic Republic, uh, that no one, because of the regime, I have to, um, I have to just emphasize, no one cared about the country, and I hate it. Just this, this, this called the subculture of let it go. I mean, if someone is still living in Iran, maybe understand what I'm saying. Let it go. It's like, ugh, never mind. Why would you care? It's not your house. Just let it go. Mm. And that made disasters like Metropol in, in Khuzestan, you know, and a lot of other disasters when you just out of sudden cannot trust anyone and anything anymore. Mm. You don't know if the engineer is doing his job correctly or the doctor is doing their job correctly or, 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 or. And that's the point that we need to have someone who just can give us this national pride, this patriotism, and this love for the soil. That's so important to know that we need someone who has it and who can actually give us back this feeling. I think I think he could be the guy, really. There has been a lot of concern that somehow the movement, especially inside Iran, uh, and undoubtedly due to the, the brutality of the crackdown on those who were protesting, that the movement has somehow died down, that the revolution is is not happening, that there aren't as many people in the streets. What what did you think of the new protests that occurred um, over the last few days in Iran? Did they uh, inspire you or give you hope that things are um, still continuing in an important way? Well, I never lost my hope um, because of the streets being empties of protesters. Um, I may lose my hope, as I just mentioned, when Iran's well, Islamic Republic's international politics goes differently. That's another story. But, um, well, 
the the tempo of our protests or uprising were way too high. It, it was going so fast. It was so swift that at the very um, beginning of the uh, revolution, uh, or, well, uprising at least, uh, it's going to be a revolution, I hope so. Um, I was always wondering, hey, guys, um, I mean, I was always telling my, my like people around me at least, it can't go on like this. Just don't get your hopes so high. And just expect this as it must be. It's it's just too fast. Everything was going so fast. And I, I remember, even I mentioned it several times in my interviews, this is so fast. Don't get your hopes so high. Because when it comes down, which it might, and we see that it already did, then you you lose your hopes. You right. are not allowed to. Right. It, it has to be like this. Up, down, up, down is totally normal. I think I think it, it's now something started that can't be stopped, especially because of the activities of the Iranian diaspora. So I, I still have my hopes. I'm so grateful for the time you've given us. I'm sorry I've kept you so long. I, let me ask you uh, one more question. You just keep saying interesting things that I want to uh, uh, pick up on. And as a final question, maybe I will pick up on one of the, the interesting things you've said. Uh, and that is a few moments ago. I, I thought this was very, very interesting. You said um, uh, the biggest political mistake we make, uh, if I can paraphrase you, is is to try and um, drag people along to this if they don't want to be to to be part of the uprising, to be part of the revolution. Um, and uh, certainly, I agree that we shouldn't be shaming people if they're not, you know, um, spending all their time on Instagram uh, amplifying the revolution voices or whatever. And there was some of that that happened in the first few few months, and I don't think it it was helpful. But on the other hand, there have been people from the beginning saying, look, this is going to take a collective effort and everybody needs to be on board and there's kids dying. And uh, so... Um, with that said, and with what you what you talked about, what do you believe are the important next steps? If you could, if you could snap your fingers and get what you want for those of us in the diaspora, in terms of helping this this movement, what do you believe the next important steps would be? Safety of the protesters. It's a woman life freedom um, uprising revolution. It, it is about life. We don't need martyrs anymore. Or, well, not, I mean, some people are already just just in this way, you know, like people like me, we don't care what happens. We already, I mean, I feel like I already lost everything. <laughs> I have my country behind me. What else can I lose, you know? And that means like everything, my family, the love of my life, everything, everything is lost. So I don't, I don't mind anymore if I lose more, even even if my life. But um, the safety of those who are protesting is the most important thing. That's why I think the role of the diaspora is very important. We need to achieve what we demanded from the day one. Putting IRGC especially in the terror list will help us to cut the economical and well the financial aid um, giving to give given to the Islamic regime, which means that the suppressive Forces are going to be cut from their wages, and that's the good news for us. Because yeah. if they're they're not paid, they couldn't they could not like kill further, and that's the moment that eventually the core gonna collapse. 
you know, the lack of money, the, the lack of support. And um, that's, that's, that's the moment that everyone will join. It's such a good reminder. It's such a good reminder because, yes, A, that's something we've been saying since the, since the beginning, and there's a reason for it. And B, because it really doesn't have to do with whether things are happening inside Iran on the streets or not. That is something that's on the diaspora. It's on us. Uh, we are responsible for the predictable outcome of the actions of our governments, the government of Canada, the government of Germany, or whatever, where we're living. And we are the ones who have to pressure them into putting the IRGC on the terrorist list. And and that that is that is something that the diaspora can do, regardless of whether we think that there's wind in the sails of the of the movement inside Iran or not uh, from day to day. It's a great reminder. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. And thank you for um, taking the time for for all the passion with which what you do. I don't know how you're. Your, uh, how much time you're you're getting to finish your PhD while you're, while you're doing all your media appearances and your activism? But my second wish, Giandra, my second wish, my first wish <laughs> is actually my or better to say goal is to get rid of the Islamic regime, and the second is to finally finish my studies. It has <laughs> right, been a right, long right. Time. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's, it's probably really a, yeah, a couple of months. Still it's no easy months. task. <laughs> I'm so close now. <laughs> Thank you for this, and I hope uh, hope we do it again soon. And and stay safe and and uh, stay strong in Germany. Thank you so much. Thank you, and I I just hope that we eventually will meet in Iran. <laughs> That's the dream. Merci, merci, Khodafis. Khodafis. in Frankfurt. This is full time for Rook for today. Thank you so much for listening along. Remember, our website is rookmedia.com where you can link to ways to support us. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Roam, talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega, I'm Merit Dodd. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. Back on Monday. In the meantime, as ever, Mizun Bashin.